you want to turn to Mark 16, we're looking at confirming the word with signs following part two. We're going to read Mark 16, beginning in verse 15 to the end. And it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Well, if you, if you notice, uh, using the New King James, I'm going to try preaching out of the New King James, see how that works. Got me a new preaching Bible. You know, the command of the Lord there, we've been going through this, is go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And preach the gospel is the good news, and we've talked about this. What is the good news? That all of mankind, we said all of mankind is in darkness. Lust, greed, pride, uncleanness, sickness, that are all the things. We just got to look around, don't we? Walk outside and look around. That's everything that dominates this kingdom. It's where we're living, isn't it? The message is this kingdom, its king, and all of its citizens are headed for destruction. That's the bad news. You know, you've heard good news, bad news, and you've got to hear the bad news first. Uh, John Bunyan does a great job, so I'm going to promote something here. If you haven't ever read Pilgrim's Progress, especially if you're a young person, it would be worth your while to shut off your cell phone and maybe spend an hour a night reading that. And if you're an old person, it wouldn't hurt to go back and reread it. It's a classic book. And actually, outside of the Bible, it's the best-selling book of all time. It's a good reason to read it. But in that book, at the very beginning of it, he talks about this. He says, I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. He says, I looked, and I saw him open the book and read therein, and it says, as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, what shall I do? In this plight, therefore, he went home and refrained himself as long as he could, that his wife and his children should not perceive his distress. But he could not be silent long, because that this trouble increased Wherefore, at length, he break his mind to his wife and children, and thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, said he, and you, the children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am in myself undone by reason of a burden that lies hard upon me. Moreover, I am for certain informed that this our city will be burnt with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin, except some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered." He goes home, tells his wife and children that, and in the book it says they tried to calm him down. They're like, Dad's all upset. They thought he just needs a good night's rest. They tried to put him to bed, but he said going to bed didn't help me. It only got worse. And it said the more he pled with them, they just became hardened against what he was saying. And finally one day it says he was out in the field reading the book, and he cried out again, What shall I do to be saved? And it says there appeared to him a man named evangelist and he hands him a scroll 
And on that scroll, when he opened it up, it said, flee from the wrath to come. The man is Christian and Christian to ask evangelists, he goes, well, then where am I to flee? And he says, well, do you see a light yonder? He says, I see that light. He says, you head towards that light and just keep going until you get to it. And you'll be told what you have to do. So Bunyan goes on to write this. He says, so I saw in my dream that the man began to run. And now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. The neighbors also came out to see him run. And as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried after him to return. And among those that did so, there were two that were resolved to fetch him back by force. Now by this time, the man had got a good distance from them, but however, they were resolved to pursue him, which they did. And in a little time, they overtook him. And then said the man, neighbors, wherefore are you come? And they said, to persuade you to go back with us. But he said, that can by no means be. You dwell, said he, in the city of destruction, the place also where I was born. I see it to be so. And dying there, sooner or later, you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Be content, good neighbors, and go along with me. And they answered him, what? And leave our friends and our comforts behind us? And he said, yes, because that all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that that I am seeking to enjoy. I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away. And it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be bestowed at the time appointed on them that diligently seek it. Read it so, if you will. It's in my book. And one of the men named Obstinus answered, he says, Shush, away with your book. Will you go back with us or no? And that's it. The city of destruction that Christian lived in is the same city or kingdom that we live in, the kingdom of darkness. And everyone in it, if you notice, they are carrying a heavy burden and they all are going to sink into the pit. So Jesus tells us what we should do is proclaim the good news that we find in the book. It's the same book that Bunyan had, Rescue Has Come. And that's what the gospel is. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that does not believe will be condemned. And the truth is, most will be like obstinate and say, you tell them what's in the book. And it's obvious that what the book says is true. But they'll say, tush, away with your book. Are you going to go with us or not? That's going to be their answer. But we have this promise, don't we? Not everybody is going to reject the message because God has his elect. Amen. Just like me or you, we rejected it at one time. And the way he's going to reach them is you don't see where an angel or God himself appears to anyone. It's through the message, isn't it? It's through the good news. Cornelius had an angel come, but he had to send for Peter. And Peter had to come and preach the gospel. That's where we come in. That's our responsibility. And the good news is, to these people that are in this city of destruction, that help has arrived. God has sent help to deliver you from that city. Like we sing in the song, he's extended his righteous right arm. And he'll lift you up out of that city of destruction that you're in. That powerful arm will do that. 
a terrible pit that we were all in at one time called the world. And he says, I'll take you out of that pit and bring you in to the city of my kingdom. That's life and light and purity and love, which that's what all the world claims they're looking for. And that's what God offers. Psalm 40, verse 1 to 3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. And that should be our testimony. You had to be bad. People have to see that change that took place in your life. Did they see that change that took place in your life, Paul? Yeah, they have to see that. And they have to realize God brought him up out of a pit. People that knew you well. Hey, and it's to praise to our God. He set and established your goings. You're not the same person. That's the message. We've quoted this last time, Colossians 1.13. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom. We're saying the gospel is the kingdom of God has come. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Translated or transferred from one place to another is what the word means. And the thing is, that is not just a figure of speech. That has literally happened. If you're born again, you have literally been taken out of one kingdom and put into another. That's what we've been talking about on Wednesdays and on Sundays, that we have a new identity through this union with Christ. We are not in the same kingdom. We're not the same people. We're not, we don't have the same spirit. We don't have the same nature. All things have become new, in other words. That's what it says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in union with Christ, he is a new creation, not creature, a creation. Old things have passed away, that old kingdom, the old master, the old slavery, all the bondage. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And we're in a kingdom now that offers us forgiveness and healing and fellowship with God. None of us had that before. Here's the good news that we've been saying is you don't have to wait to experience the kingdom because it is here. Jesus said at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And to prove that was true, he went and gave signs that the kingdom of God had arrived. And that's what all the healings, deliverance, raising the dead, supernatural provision. It's arrived and he demonstrated that it had arrived. And how had that happened? It had happened once he was baptized and anointed with the Spirit. Went into the wilderness and said he came back in the power of the Spirit. Because that is how the kingdom comes into our lives. It doesn't come through all of man's means, does it? It comes through the power of the Spirit of God. John the Baptist, Matthew 11. He's put in prison, sends two of his disciples, and they ask Jesus, are you the one we're looking for, or do we look for another? And here was his answer to him. We sing the song, he says, will you go tell John this? And he proceeds, you know what he proceeds to do? We sing that, but what he's doing is, he's quoting basically to John Isaiah 35. And if you ever go back and read Isaiah 35, that is the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom of God has come. And those are the signs that the kingdom has come and that the Spirit has come to bring that. And John the Baptist, he knew his Old Testament. He would have known that. 
And that's the answer Jesus has given him, a biblical answer. He wasn't just throwing out there, well, <laughs> look what I'm doing, can't you tell? No, he's saying, no, I'm fulfilling the scripture that's showing that the kingdom of God has come. So we're saying the kingdom of God has arrived in the power of the spirit, and it started with our Lord Jesus Christ, and it has never left. But one chapter later, in Matthew 12, the Pharisees said, talking about Jesus, they're saying, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And listen to how Jesus answered them. He says, every kingdom, he brings the kingdom in again. Every kingdom that's divided against itself is brought to desolation. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. And how then will his kingdom stand? He's saying his kingdom's operating in this world. These people filled with spirits, that's his kingdom operating. And he's saying if he's casting out spirits, this kingdom, he's established here on his earth, he's saying it will not stand. But he goes on to say, if I, though, cast out demons by the spirit of God, and that's what he was doing, then he says, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, I'm demonstrating by the power of the Spirit that you don't have to wait any longer. This is not a future thing at this point. Surely, he says, the kingdom of God has come. It's already here, and it still is. And we need to get that in our spirit. Because I've heard charismatic big-time preachers say that, well, we'll get our healing when we die on the other side. No, he promises it now. And right, I don't argue with that. It's not fully come. Obviously, isn't We're not living in the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't literally reigning on this earth. We know all that's future and will happen. But yet we are, in a sense, we're his outpost, the church. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are left here on this earth. And we can experience the provision and make the announcement. We're his ambassadors. This kingdom is here and now and can be experienced. You can enter into it and become a citizen forever. That's the offer that we're making to people. But what we need to see is wherever there is a proclamation of the kingdom, there are signs that accompany it and prove its truth. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I want to look at Luke 8, 9, and 10. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass afterwards that he, Jesus, he went through every city and village Preaching and bringing the glad tidings of what? The kingdom of God. So he's preaching and he's telling people, it's come, it's here. The power of the kingdom of God is here. And it says the twelve were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Really what you have there in his first few verses is he's saying the kingdom of God has come. That's what he's preaching. And then right after that, it's saying here's examples of that. These women had seven spirits. They were delivered out of that kingdom. And it said the other women too were healed and delivered. It just mentions Mary Magdalene. Specifically, she had seven spirits. But now that she is with the king and in his kingdom, guess who is no longer accompanying her? Those spirits. The king has set her free. And that's our message. People are oppressed. I was oppressed at one time with evil spirits. And that was the message that set me free. I don't have to wait. 
I'm going to have to, what, be oppressed the rest of my life? That's what the kingdom of darkness told me. That's what my psychiatrist when I was in high school told my dad. Your son's going to have that. He's going to have to be on his medication the rest of his life. Well, that's the message of the kingdom of darkness. They want to keep you bound. Oh, we'll help you cope, but you're going to have to be bound. And Jesus said, oh, no, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. <laughs> I have any joy when you're all bound up. I didn't. Turn over to chapter 9 and look what it says there, the first two verses there. We're saying well, the proclamation of the kingdom, God's going to back it up. Chapter 9 of Luke, it says, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them to preach what? The kingdom of God. That's the gospel. And to heal the sick. And that's what they did. The good news is the kingdom of God is here, and the sign that it's true is that the Spirit of God now rested on them. They weren't doing that because of willpower. He gave them that authority. That means the Spirit was upon them. They had the power and the, the Spirit, the ability to bring deliverance and healing, preaching the kingdom and confirming it. And if you look over in chapter 10, and look what it says in verse 1. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then look down in verses eight and nine. And he said, told them after giving them other instructions, he says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And what does he say to do? Heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so that's what they went and did. Now, it just talks about healing there. But what happened when they came back and gave their report to him? Well, look in verse 17 of chapter 10. Look what it says. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, here's the authority and power they had. They're like, man, this is great. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now listen, the 70 were not the 12 apostles. They were just followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, weren't they? They weren't, if you want to put it this way, they weren't privileged five-fold ministry, even though there should never be that distinction anyways. We shouldn't have somebody carrying your bag just because, well, you're the preacher. I'm going to carry your bag. But then someone else, it's like they're carrying four bags and they're old and they can't hardly do it. And you ignore them. That shouldn't be distinctions like that, should there? Just different gifting. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the point is, these were just, if you want to put it this way, they weren't fivefold ministry. They're just all of us. And yet they had authority over demons, didn't they? He gave them that. And... Here's, that's the thing is, do you see that you have that authority in your life, the life of your children? Or what if someone came to you and wanted to seek deliverance from you? Would you be wondering, I don't know what I can do with this. Oh, we need to see he's given us that same authority. And we'll see that. Back to Mark 16. This is what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Go into all the world. This is to all of us. Preach the gospel to every creature, and the one that believes and is baptized, he'll be saved. The one that doesn't believe will be condemned, and these signs will follow. It doesn't say apostles. It says those who believe, doesn't it? 
in my name, they will cast out demons. That's what we saw happen in there. Then they'll speak with new tongues. He said anyone that believes in him has authority over demons and can cast them out. Now, I would add on that, that is as they are led and anointed by the Spirit of God. Because you can't cast a spirit out of somebody that doesn't want deliverance or that doesn't have any faith. You can't. Otherwise, you could go into every mental hospital and just go in there and empty it out because you, I've got this authority. And go ahead and come back and tell us how that went for you. <laughs> I mean, probably not going to work. But when you share the gospel, which is what they did. So these people, it doesn't say they just went and started casting out spirits, does it? What did he tell them you have to do first? You've got to preach the good news. They have to have faith. Faith comes by hearing the good news. And so that's what we have to do. But when we have that and we've done that and someone responds in faith, guess what? You have the authority to cast out spirits. I had it happen at prison two weeks ago. I was preaching about this is my testimony. This is what God will do for you. And I had a guy come up because of that sharing the gospel that wanted me to pray for and to be delivered from a spirit. And I sit there and think, well, I can't do that. You know, come back next week. Somebody else will be here. Oh, I'm like. That's what God has given us, isn't it? The authority brings people across your path, puts you in those situations so we can deal with things. And you start doing that and your Christian life starts becoming alive and the word starts becoming a little more meaningful. I mean, I know I've said that before, but that's just the way it is. So we have power over the enemy. We don't have to have some special anointing, so to speak, in our own lives and in the lives of our young children. James 4 says this. He says, therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. The promise is that if we'll humble ourselves and bring our hearts into submission to God, because if you haven't done that, that may be where you're leaving a door open for the devil to oppress you. But if you've done that, dealt with any known sin in your life, then the devil has no place in your life. And you can resist him. The promise is that he will flee. Now, if you're going to say that doesn't work for me, I'm saying it has to work. Because God said it does. If you meet the requirements, God always meets his side of the bargain, doesn't he? Without fail. Now, it may be you got to pray and find out where you're missing it. I don't know. And it says he will flee. Now, that word flee means you are getting away from somebody because you want to find a place of safety. And it's saying that's what the devil will do. And that's what happens when we resist him in faith. He is fleeing for safety because like any bully, you know how bullies are? They'll pick on somebody smaller than them or whatever. When the big brother comes around, one that is stronger or whatever, guess what they do? They take off. If I was picking on Caleb's brother when they were little and Caleb came around and said, what are you doing? I'd be out of there. I would not want to tangle with, especially if Caleb was upset. That'd be like we talked about. You flee from the lion and you meet a bear. There you go. <laughs> but Luke 11, that's exactly what it says. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. And he's describing the devil there who's got somebody's life, who's got somebody's soul, has them in his power. They are his slaves, whether he's got them enslaved in fear and lust and doubt 
or in pride, he's got them and they can't get away. He's stronger than they are. He's stronger than any of us are in here on our own. Believe me. And Paul describes a person like that in 2 Timothy 2. He says that they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him at his will. And that can be a saint or a sinner because all of us are warned, give no place to the devil. So we can. That doesn't mean that's the end, though, even if you have, because there's hope. As Jesus said this, he said that the armed bully, he's sitting there, he's got you. You've opened the door. You just, like I said, submit to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, if that's the reason this has come on you or whatever. Or just maybe you've just gotten weak, just haven't been as close to the Lord. That's why he says, draw an eye to God and he'll draw an eye to you. Submit to him, then resist the devil. He has to flee. That's what it's saying. But here he is, the armed bully's sitting there at the cave. He's got you in there chained, and he's sitting outside. Nobody's messing with my captive, my slave in there. That's kind of the picture you get. But Jesus went on to say, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And that's what Jesus does to the devil. He comes upon him, he overcomes him, and sends him running. He flees. But how does that happen if you're a Christian? I mean, we've been empowered by the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had, haven't we? It's no different. It's the same Spirit with the same power. He overcomes in our lives through our resistance. We have to resist in the power of the Spirit through faith. First Peter it runs parallel to James. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he says, resist him. That same thing James says. But he says, resist him steadfastly in the faith. We have got to fight. We've got to resist. He's not going to just flee if we're not fighting, we're not resisting. And it's Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Because our wrestling match isn't with men. We might have a chance then, but this is with supernatural powers and beings. We are no match against them. We have to put on the Lord and his strength and his might and realize who lives within us. That's what we've been talking about. And that greater is he that is in me. And he that is in the world. And we really have to believe that and trust that. Trust that it'll work. The reason we can be confident that we can cast out demons in the name of Jesus is because of the second sign. They will speak with new tongues. Why didn't he say that the sign would be, those signs shall follow them that believe they'll be full of the spirit. Or they'll be full of faith or full of joy or full of peace that that would be the sign. Why did it say they will speak with new tongues? Speaking in tongues is the sign, the universal sign or evidence that someone has been filled with the Spirit. And I want to talk for a minute what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And if you would, turn over to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. Oh, notice this is familiar, but we're going to read it. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, 
and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the first time it talks about being filled, it talks about that there was this strong, violent wind, the sound of it. And it says that it filled the entire house. You can have a violent wind outside in the wintertime and you'll hear it blowing, but it's not like it's filling the house. It's like it's over there in this window. It's saying here, he's making the point that this sound of this wind came in there and it's saying it filled the, it'd be like this entire room is filled with that sound. So what does it say? It's saying the presence of God is there that strong filling this house, just like he would fill the temple. We've read about that. Just like when his presence comes in, when we're having a good meeting, doesn't it just fill this whole room? Amen. It's like, you know, he's here everywhere. He's filling it. And that's what it's saying there. And then it said he not only filled the room, but he filled each individual in the room. And we can pass over that, what he's talking about there, too quickly. Because look back and chapter 1 and look what it says in verses 4 and 5 Acts 1 verses 4 and 5 it says and being assembled together with them he Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you have heard of me for John truly baptized with water but he says you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now Acts 2 talked about them being filled. But Jesus said that filling would be a baptism. They're just taking the Greek word and making the Greek word the same as the English word because the Greek word is baptizo. And so they just make it baptism. And it doesn't really tell you the meaning. The meaning of baptizo is immersion. And that means more than just, there's another Greek word that's only, I think it's used three times in the New Testament, bapto, which just means dipping. And I ran across this in a roundabout way. This guy, James Montgomery Boyce, gave an explanation that I think will help us see something here of the difference between bapto, dipping, and baptismo, immersion. And listen to this. He says, the clearest example that shows the meaning of baptize is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander who lived about 200 BC. It's a recipe for making pickles. And it's helpful because it uses both words. He's writing in Greek back in 200 BC and in Greek he's telling you how to make pickles. You're like, all right, well just listen here. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, bapto, in the boiling water and then baptized, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution. So you're immersing both of them in a solution. But the first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable produces, and listen to this, a permanent change. When used in the New Testament, this word refers to our union, now that caught my attention there, and identification with Christ in baptism. Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And this man wrote, Christ is saying that mere intellectual assent is not enough, 
There must be a union with him, a real change, like the vegetable to the pickle. He's saying that quick dipping didn't affect the change, but when that vegetable is fully immersed and put in there, there is a permanent change. That vegetable is never the same. Never the same from there on out. And Jesus is telling us here in verse 4 that we just read in Acts chapter 1. He's saying, you're not just going to be dipped real quick. And he says, you're going to be immersed, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, you and I, once that happens, if that happens, will never be the same. Because that pickle has that vinegar all throughout it, doesn't it? It's all through it. Back to the union with Christ, that's what he was saying there. And that word for immersed or baptized is also used when you put a cloth in dye. It's still the cloth. Nothing's changed, but that dye permeates all of it. And he's saying that's what happens to us. Jesus is saying that when we are filled with the Spirit, that is no small thing. That's just not because you got prayed for and you said, hick, tick, soak, and oh, I got the baptism. No. That's not what it is. The point is, We are immersed in the Spirit, and from that comes the tongues. We're not believing for tongues, so to speak, are we? We're not just believing for to have power. We're believing to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Tongues and power, yeah, they're definitely all part of it, aren't they? We're wanting His presence and power in our lives, and, and tongues are just merely the sign of what's happened. Being filled with the Spirit, it comes out. Honestly, you don't really see people having to be told you have to pray in tongues, do you? I mean, Cornelius, it fell on them, and that's just what came out. We can pray in the Spirit whether we feel like it or not in faith, but there's times, aren't there, when the anointing comes out. That is just all you really you can do, isn't it? It happens that way for me. Sometimes when you're praising in a meeting or wherever, and the anointing comes on you, it's just like that's all that can come out. Yeah, Evidences should also be there, and I've heard that complaint. Well, you act like tongues is the end. I've never acted like that. And I would say, yeah, I think there should be other evidences, like the fruit of the Spirit, love, and power over sin. Just to say, oh, I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit because I said a few words one time or whatever all, and there's no change that takes place. Well, really, what evidence do you have? I mean, the devil can counterfeit tongues, and he has. I'm not trying to make anybody doubt that, but... (laughs) You know whether you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus says you don't have to worry about getting the devil in you. He's saying you ask your father for the Holy Spirit. He's not going to give you a substitute. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He didn't mean to shake anybody up there. But but let's just look over there. I could go through all the verses in Acts. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. And you should all know those. Everywhere they get the Holy Spirit. I mean, because if you have to talk to somebody or witness to somebody, you should have those memorized by now. That's like the ABCs of being a charismatic. If you don't, that may, I'd make that like priority number one. Seriously. But I don't want to go through all of them, but I do want to look over at Acts 10. Because I want to show that that is this immersion, this baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's what the Lord's after. And that's the crucial thing. So when you look in Acts chapter 10, in verse 44, this is where Cornelius and his household are baptized. They get Peter there. He preaches the sermon about Jesus. 
and what he had done. And it says in verse 44, Acts 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed. They're astonished, as many as came with Peter. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And how did they know that? For Four means because. Here's how they knew. They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So that right there tells you that water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit aren't the same things if you need a proof text for that. But what I want us to see is if you go over to the next chapter, Peter goes back to the apostles and brethren in Jerusalem and repeats everything that happened. But look what he says in chapter 11, verses 13 to 18. And it says in verse 13, and he told us, he's talking about Cornelius, and this is Peter speaking, he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And listen to what he says. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be immersed with the Holy Spirit. And he says, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying, Then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. He's saying, Hey, what happened to them is they were just as immersed in the Spirit as we were. And what came out of them then came out of us. That's how we knew it. For we heard them do what? Speak with tongues. That's like, I guess, a big debate. It shouldn't be in here, but tongues is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to stay with the Bible, which I am going to stay with the Bible. Amen. And people want to get into all those verses out of 1 Corinthians. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. What we have to understand is, you know, just because we have people that are incomplete Christians, so we'll have people that are saved and not water baptized. You didn't have that in the early church. We have people that are saved and they're not water baptized and they're not also Holy Ghost baptized and speaking in tongues. You didn't have that in the early church. When Paul's writing those epistles to the Corinthians, he's writing with the understanding that everyone, this wasn't something that was put off or separated in time. Because as soon as they found somebody, Acts 19, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? Well, we haven't heard about it. They took care of it. They didn't act like we could have this, some Christians have the Holy Spirit and some don't, and it doesn't matter, let's all get along. That's not the way the book of Acts presents things. They find out somebody in Acts 8, hey, when they find out they received the Lord, they'd had deliverance and healings. They said, they send down Peter and John, we're going to pray for them right away, these Samaritans, because they knew the need of it. That's why Jesus was ascended. He said, I went up so I can send the Holy Spirit down. And we need that to not only just empower us with the gifts, but also to overcome sin in our lives, Amen. to live the Sermon on the Mount. Right. So they took care of that. I mean, show me anything else that happened. When the epistles, Paul is making the assumption that everybody has had the same experience because they had back then. Amen. That's right. 
They were water baptized when they believed. And Peter says, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And that's what they got. They didn't get it a year later or six months later. They got it then. And he's writing to people that received the whole package. Amen. Am I saying somebody that doesn't speak in tongues and isn't water baptized, isn't saved? I'm not saying that. I didn't say that. Now, I would say somebody that claims to be a Christian and has not gotten water baptized and they've had opportunity to, I would question, what's wrong with you? It's a command. <laughs> you're saying you're saved and that's what shows your union with Christ and you're saying, I'm not. That's how you're identified with him. That's what gets Muslims' heads cut off. And you're saying, I'm not willing to do that? Then I would question your salvation. Or you need to question it, I would say. Anyways, so what's the big deal about tongues? For some people, it's not a big deal because they never pray in tongues. It's, so it's really not a big deal for them. But the Bible clearly distinguishes that we have a need for tongues. And there's a purpose to it. It's not just the initial sign that we receive the Holy Spirit. There's way more to it than that. And that's another reason why I would say, you're going to say tongues is no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Amen. It's a huge big deal. Yeah. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 14... Now, the first thing I want to point out, because this is a common argument, you'll hear somewhere, if you talk to anybody about tongues, and they'll say, well, he says everybody doesn't have the gift of tongues. So you got to understand 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which is where they're always referring to. He's talking about when you gather together in the church, that gift of tongues. Look in verse 18 of chapter 14. Paul says, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than y'all. He says, yet in the church... I would rather speak five words with my understanding. He's talking about in the church. That's what the gifts are, because you use that same argument and they'll say, well, everyone doesn't have the gift of tongues. Well, also one of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 is the gift of faith. Now, are you going to say, well, just some people have that and not everybody? Because you'd have to use the same logic. And I'd be like, you better have faith or you're not saved. But not everyone has the gift of faith that is used in the church. Amen. It's the same with the gift of tongues. Unless you're trying to prove a point, all of this is not that hard to understand. And when you really, when you believe the truth, all the pieces of the puzzle fit together really nicely. And when you don't and you are off on things, things you're kind of trying to wedge them in there because they really don't fit. What I want to see is saying, what is the purpose of tongues? Look what he says here in 1 Corinthians 14 and verses 2 to 4. So we're talking about in the church, but look what he says. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. But to God. And why doesn't he speak to men? He says, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. He's saying speaking in tongues. There's the first place where he talks about speaking in tongues is the same as speaking in the spirit. But look what he says. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation and comfort to men. But look in verse four. He who speaks in a tongue is wasting his time. Is that what it says? He who speaks in a tongue does what? Edifies, builds himself up. That's, a, that's no small thing. We'll see that here in a minute. It's no small thing there. But he who prophesies, he says, edifies the church. So the church, you need to be able to understand what somebody's saying. But he's saying when you're by yourself and you're praying in tongues, you're building yourself up. You're not wasting your time. The other thing I want to look at here is we've looked at it once is praying in tongues is equivalent to praying in the spirit. Look in 1 Corinthians 14, 13. He says, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And here he's talking about his prayer language. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Do we see they're the same? Praying in tongues and praying 
in the spirit are the same things. He says, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? He says, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray also with the understanding. For us, that would be in tongues and then also in English. He says, I'll sing with the spirit. I'll also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, he says, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks as he doesn't understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well. They say, that's great. Praying and thanking in tongues. You're doing it perfectly. But the other isn't built up because he can't understand you. And he says, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So I would say, based on that, are we having an issue with that praying in the tongues is the same as praying in the Spirit? I mean, I think that makes it pretty clear. Are we all on the same page there? Amen, Amen everybody. <laughs> I hope so. And the other thing is, so we're saying the purpose is it edifies yourself. Praying in tongues is the same as praying in the Spirit. And based on that, that we know they're the same, praying in the Spirit and praying in tongues, we can pray in the Spirit. I'm not going to have us turn to these verses tonight because we know them. But in praying in the Spirit, we can pray for others in a way we can in English, Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And that's what we do mainly on Thursday night. We do pray in English, but we mostly are praying in the Spirit. Because we can pray about in English all we want, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. We could do more of that. I wouldn't have any problem with that. A lot of the situations, I don't know what's going on. I really don't. And I know that, but, but I pray in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows. He knows everything. And He knows what that person needs prayer for, doesn't He? Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And He says that we should pray in the Spirit. Now, I'm saying that could also be the Spirit's presence is there. I don't have a problem with looking at it that way. But I also think He means praying in tongues. And He's saying with all perseverance. That means you don't give up on them. You got one of your brothers and sisters in a hard way. You don't give up on them, do we? Amen. Like I said, I can look at a situation a person's in and I can feel for them. I can think I know this, that or that about them. We don't know what's going on in everybody's lives, do we? All I can see, this is what I can see, that you, my brother or sister, you have a great need that doesn't seem to be going away. And as long as that's there, unless God tells me otherwise, I am going to pray in the Spirit for you. Amen. That's what I'm going to do the best I can. I think that's the best way we can minister to others is prayer in the Spirit. Like I said, God knows what they need. Because it's like Aaron praying for Brett last night. He's like... That answer is on its way. There may be a hindrance there for whatever. We don't know, do we? Daniel 10. That angel came to Daniel. He said, Daniel, I'm going to tell you, from the first day that you went on this fast and sought God, your prayer was answered and it was sent. I was coming, but I couldn't get there because there's a warfare that was taking place. And through his intercession, that's how that angel was able to break through. However that works, I don't understand how all that works. But what if Daniel would have given up after a week, two weeks? Guess who would have never made it there? 
But it wasn't because God hadn't sent the answer. He's, we got to believe that answer is on the way when we pray. Amen. It's coming. I'm looking for it. Amen. Run me over like a freight train on the first minute. But if not, I'm still looking because it's coming. It may be that we're praying about that. It may be the person's faith needs to be strengthened. I don't know. It may be they have a sin that they need to deal with. And God's trying to get their attention. And he does that through your intercession. Works things out. I could tell you a case that we all know about. Prayed for a long time. A long, long time. And God just orchestrated everything right at the last minute to work everything out. I didn't think, feel like I wasted all my prayer time. Now I feel like that's what enabled that to happen. Amen. And I think there's a lot of people, because we're praying, God has preserved them until the time of their manifestation. Look again at what happens here in 1 Corinthians 14, just quickly. We're still in 1 Corinthians 14. Here's what happens when we pray in tongues. Verse 4, it says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And look in verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. In verse 18, it says, Paul says this, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Remember those three verses there, okay? And turn back to Jude 20. Not chapter 20. There's not 20 chapters in Jude, but there is a verse, Jude 20. So Jude writes to us, he says, but you, beloved, Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. How? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And here, that's the thing I think people struggle with in our groups more than anything. Having faith and knowing God loves them. Wouldn't you all agree? I would. I think people struggle with that more than they would ever admit. And Jude has just given us the key to how to overcome that. Praying in tongues. Praying in the Spirit. Ask yourself, you struggle, how much do you pray in the Spirit? How much time do you, I mean, it's getting quiet in here. It shouldn't be getting quiet. But that is it. And you say, I don't pray that much in the Spirit. I wish I had the faith and assurance of the Apostle Paul. Well, that's why I had us read that last verse. He says, I speak in tongues more than you all. And he means all you all put together. I was talking to somebody the other night. What do you think the Apostle Paul was doing in his quote unquote free time? What do you think he was doing when he was walking from city to city? What do you think he was doing when he went from Athens down in southern Greece all the way up to Thessalonica in Philippi? I've ridden that in a bus. It was a long, weary ride in a bus. A lot of rough country. I mean, think about what is he doing on his donkey? All the, I guess he was on a donkey. I don't know. But I'll tell you what he was doing. What's he doing when he's taking his cruises? He's on Holland America on a cruise. And lo and behold, they're like the Titanic. They hit an iceberg and he's drowning. He's day and the night in the deep. What do you think he's doing during all that time? I'll tell you what he's doing. Praying in tongues more than you all. Amen. That's right. <laughs> That's what he's doing. And that's why he had the faith and assurance that he had. And so let's just make it a point to do that. Amen. He's given us the Holy Spirit and he's saying, and that's what we struggle with. Well, let's quit struggling. And let's start praying in tongues more and let's build ourselves up on our most holy faith. Let's keep ourselves in the love of God. Amen. That's what it says. Keep yourself in the love of God. So I was reading this book recommended to me. 
up north, they speak with other tongues by John Sherrill. And I just happened to read this yesterday. I wasn't looking for it. But in his book, he tells the secret of David Wilkerson's ministry and the power that was in his ministry. And here's what he said. I had never seen this before. He said, David Wilkerson, he rode a ferry boat every day for one half hour from Stanton Island to Manhattan, New York City. And here's what this man read. He said, David Wilkerson used the time on the boat for prayer in tongues. He would start off by thinking of all the things he had to be thankful for. He would review them one by one in his mind. In English, praising God for each one. Bit by bit inside him, he would feel a mounting sense of joy. He was conscious of being loved, taken care of. It says, and suddenly in trying to express his gratitude, he would reach a language barrier. English could no longer express what he felt. It was at this point that he would burst through into communication that was not limited to vocabulary. His spirit as well as his mind would start to praise God. And it says, inevitably, by the time David reached the Manhattan Pier, a transformation had taken place. He was built up in body and in spirit. He felt emboldened, ready to tackle impossible tasks, invigorated and refreshed, ready to meet whatever the day had to offer. And you know what else he went on to say even a little further than that? Is he said, in talking with David Wilkerson, that David Wilkerson, I'm not promoting this, but I thought there's something to think about. He would tithe his time in prayer. He said there's 24 hours a day. He would give 2.5 hours every day to pray in the spirit. Now, what if we did that? I mean, how hungry really are we for wanting the presence of God in our midst and in our lives? And we talk about the gifts and all that. I'm saying, it, how did it come for him in the book of Acts? Those people were 10 days. I was telling Greg, I said, you think we could shut down all the anything that was not absolutely necessary on our cell phones for 10 days to seek and praise God that his spirit would be poured out on us? You, you guys, would that be like, man, I thought fasting was bad. That is like, oh, <laughs> you know, and Wilkerson was a person of prayer and it would come through in his preaching. Amen. And we need that same presence of God in our lives, whether we're preaching or not preaching. So what we need to understand, it's the indwelling spirit. I'm about ready to make my last point here. It's the indwelling spirit in each believer that our Lord, it's through us, all of us here, that he continues his work on earth. And so if you would just turn back to John 16. I want to look at a couple things here around John 14 and 16. But turn first to John 16. Jesus said this in verses 5 to 8. John 16, he says, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. I think King James says it is expedient. Same thing. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We all think, well, I'd like to have Jesus here with me personally. And he's telling his disciples that did have him there personally, he's saying, it's to your advantage. Not that I stay here with you personally, it's to your all's advantage that I go away and that the Holy Spirit comes because the thing is then, he is with each one of us 
personally. He couldn't be with every one of them personally, could he? That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we're trying to see, that he is with each one of us personally. That's what he's saying if you go back to John 14. And look what he's saying there in John 14, verses 16 to 18. We read this the other day. I want to read it again. He says, and I will pray the Father. He'll give you another helper. The same as me is what he's saying, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. But what is he saying? The Holy Spirit's coming, but then he says at the end, look in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. He says what? I will come to you. So he's saying what we talked about with that immersion, he says the change is permanent. He's saying when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you forever. He will forever dwell in you, be forever united to you. That's what it says. In verse 16, and then he's saying in verse 18 that it is he himself that is coming to live with us inside each one of us. That's no small thing. And we're all claiming to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do we really think in terms of that? <laughs> what we have? And that's why he said, if you'll go back, that's why he said what he said. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is Jesus can continue his ministry in and through us. That's why he said what he said in John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father, because I'm going to come back in you in the Holy Spirit. I won't be limited to time and space is what he's saying. He says, and whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do. That's Mark 16 that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He says, if you ask anything in my name, what does he say? I will do it. And what we need to see is the Holy Spirit living in us. He is not merely a force, not merely tongues, but the Holy Spirit living in us is a person. And if he is a person, then he is to be obeyed. His voice, his promptings, because he can be grieved just like a person. That's what it says in Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let me say, if we would just start recognizing him as a person living within us, the living God within us, immersed in us, and we're seeking his direction, his wisdom, his guidance, his power. And not only will help us personally, but he will begin to use us. Turn to Acts 9. This is an illustration of what I just talked about. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. Acts 9, 10. It says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said, in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here am I, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered into the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. So look at all these things about Ananias. Who was Ananias? What does it say in verse 10? He is just what? A certain disciple. It's the only place he's named. If you want to put it this way, he was a nobody, so to speak, wasn't he? Yet God used him. He's a nobody like me and you. A certain disciple named Ananias. The second thing is, look at this. We're saying Jesus says it's expedient. It's to your advantage that I go away and come back in the form of the Holy Spirit. What is Ananias doing here? Who's he having a conversation with? He's conversing with the Lord Jesus, isn't he? He's talking to the Holy Spirit within him, isn't he? But in verse 17, look what he says. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, he is the one that has sent me. He's the one he was talking to, but he's talking to the Holy Spirit, isn't he? Because they're one and the same. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Jesus, both in the New Testament. And then look at the signs that followed. He laid hands. It says we can lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He laid hands on Saul and he was healed. He baptized Saul. And he also, a certain disciple, the great apostle Paul, had Ananias is the one that laid his hands on him for him to receive the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. And you're saying it doesn't say he spoke in tongues. Yes, it does. We read it in 1 Corinthians 14. He spoke in tongues more than you all. Where do you think he started? <laughs> started right here. <laughs> Just kidding, but not really. <laughs> but you say, well, God's never used me like that. Well, I'm asking, do you expect that he would? Do you really believe the promise we read in John 14, 12? And I happen to just enter into a little Leonard Ravenhill. I don't want to listen to too much Leonard Ravenhill, but I listened to this little bit of this message, and I thought what he said in the first 10 minutes was all I needed to hear. He just said, we, modern-day Christians, we are living so far below the standards set in the book of Acts, we think our Christianity is normal. And if somebody started acting like what the Bible declares is a normal Christian, we would think they were abnormal. But you think about it, you look in the book of Acts, supernatural living is all through the book of Acts. Amen. Amen. Go back to Mark 16. We'll read it one last time because this is my last message in Mark. First time you'll throw your Bibles in the air <laughs> in two years. And he said in verse 15, go, and this is what we should all be doing. This is our responsibility. All of us are evangelists. We are. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized, they have to hear it, will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. We don't want that. And these signs shall follow those who believe, you and me. In my name they will cast out demons. Speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord has spoken to them, he's received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. 
the Lord working with them because he's in them and confirm the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. We need to remember what we said Sunday. We're bone of his bone. We're flesh of his flesh. We are his body on earth and we will be the ones to continue his ministry to the people here that need it. Yes. Amen. Amen. His elect. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, Lord, you'll show all of us here the, the great responsibility we have to preach the gospel, to be filled with your spirit, to recognize what you've given us with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who you've placed to live in us, that he is a person. And, Lord, that we can talk with him. He'll direct us, speak to us, empower us, be with us, comfort us, and edify us through praying in the spirit. Help us to pray for others in need, Lord, all of those things that you've given us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through your presence in the Holy Spirit. We just are so thankful for that, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to help us not neglect the gift that you've put within us, if we have. And that's my prayer tonight for all of us here, Lord. And we just ask you will renew your presence with us here in a special way, individually and corporately. And we thank you that you will do that. And we look for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.